10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 21st of November. We have the best conversations coming your way. We're discussing double standards in the workplace and why anger costs women a seat at the table. We're also discussing bro culture, why after two decades of investment, we're still looking for women in STEM. And we've got some great tips to deal with the mansplainers. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash LSW slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. We're discussing sexism today. I have the fabulous Rabia Masood joining me, two South Asian females who know misogyny and sexism inside out as it's perpetuated in all cultures across every household, education, workplace and the boardroom. Are we angry women? Let's find out after this. So glad to have you on today. How's things? Can you introduce Hi. yourself to everyone? Hi, good morning, Sobia. Yes, I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Been having a really relaxing weekend and now on the show. How's things with you? It's great. You're the only person who can get me out of bed this early on a Sunday. <laughs> okay, Rob, you're starting straight away. Are you an angry woman? I knew you were going to ask me that. I'm hangry. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, it does actually. Um, can you just explain what hangry is for our listeners who don't know that? Hangry is when you're what you get to lunchtime and you still haven't had anything to eat, and you know that that starts to show in your lessons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Rabia um, and our listeners, as women, we're told all sorts of things. We're told anger is unbecoming or unfeminine, but lots of women wield it as a tool. They don't want to forgive they don't care and they don't want to take the high road. They're sick and tired of listening to BS being fed to them. What are your thoughts on that, Rabia? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, are, are you an angry woman? Uh, I can be angry at certain times um, in terms of the circumstances, but I definitely know how to control it and I don't lose my call uh, as much as I used to when I was much younger because as women, we have to learn how to control it and sometimes it can get difficult. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, one of the things I've come across whilst I was researching this is that the emotional displays from you know, men and women um, we talk about how anger is an active, high-energy emotion. It single, signals assertiveness, status, confidence, and all of that. But it also implies that the angry person is emotionally unstable. And, you know, we hear those words sometimes when people refer to women. Um, it's, and it's all based down, basically, it depends on the uh, actor's gender. So, you know, whether we're male or female. 
But one thing that really uh, was quite interesting was empathetic anger that came out of this. Women uh, who show anger about situations that cause them personal harm, they're perceived less favorably than women who basically, it's almost like you're standing up for your colleagues and for others, that then you are perceived in a much more positive light. Um, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. For me, <clears throat> I, I also think that women should be allowed to express themselves because if a woman's angry, perhaps people should try to find out what she's angry about uh, because it might point towards things which need fixing. However, I also believe that as a classy woman and a leader, you should try to see the best in people and all the situations you're presented with. But that doesn't mean you're a pushover. So like you said, Rabia, sometimes it means standing up for other people and um, that that takes, um, you know, a certain type of person to be able to do that. Um, it also means that you're mature enough to choose your behaviour, even when you have valid things to be angry about, especially when we're in the workplace. I think what irritates me the most, though, um, is the idea of the angry black woman or the angry Asian female or just an angry hormonal woman who clearly must be PMSing. <laughs> and we're going to come back to this a bit later on, Rabia. But yeah. before we do, um, I'm just going to uh, talk about um, some females who've got some, uh, you know, some inspirational female leaders have got a lot to say on the subject. So, for example, Indra Nui is the former CEO of PepsiCo and one of the world's 100 most powerful women. And she says, when you assume negative intent, you're angry. If you take away that anger and assume positive intent, you'll be amazed. Your emotional quotient goes up because you're no longer almost random in your response. You don't get defensive. You don't scream. You are trying at your basic core to understand what they're saying. Maybe they're saying something you're not hearing. I think that's a phenomenal quote because she clearly knows how to be a phenomenal leader. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree to that. I mean, this is, I, I've always said to you, and when we've had discussions before, we need to be solution focused. And when we are being solution focused, we will actually achieve more. So it's the whole thing, as she's mentioning, you know, we do need to, in leadership, you need to be able to command authority and aggressiveness does come in with it, but we don't have to be negative all the time. We need to create that, you know, pos positive work culture and climate. Yeah, I agree. But um, I, think, I think the main important part is that as women, we're allowed to be peed off of course we are oh, yeah, um you know because women express anger to slights you know such as patronizing men missed work opportunities sexist colleagues as a female i think it's perfectly acceptable to feel this way um but as you said earlier you have to create harmony and collaboration in the workplace as well so are your feelings a barom barometer of truth you have to really think carefully about what it is that's causing you the anger now, for, now so for, for some women, it's in with quotes because some women are very, very angry and they say things like, my rage is my art, my rage keeps me alive. But the problem with that, and I understand that clearly, there's a double standard which gives men a license to be angry in public but does not accord women the same emotional freedom. Mm -hmm. And it's unjust, it's unequal, and women should have enough freedom to express anger in the same way as men. Yeah. 
And the reason why I'm saying this is because we're reminded of the incident with Serena Williams in, on the tennis court when she got frustrated and she broke her racket against the court in a match against Naomi Osaka in 2018. She received an unfair punishment for the same behaviour a male tennis player would have been less penalised for. Her response was she felt betrayed and defeat, sorry, she felt defeated and disrespected by a sport she loved. And in an article on bus.com, they question it. Is censoring women's anger, classifying it is inappropriate, offensive or inexcessive more than double standards? Does it question a woman's capacity to perceive their own reality? Because to deny anger is to dismiss that which makes us angry. And the logic being, if you ignore or erase the initial transgression, then a reasonable reaction to that transgression can be framed as an attack in itself. Now, obviously, the media were quick to pit two women of colour against each other. So, Rabia, my question to you is, obviously, we both come from diverse backgrounds. We're both diverse leaders. Do you feel there's a perception of the angry minority female by work colleagues? Has it ever been implied? That's a really interesting question, Sobi, that you mentioned. I was, you know, having a think back to when I was first uh, NNQT, I was living and working with an Irish woman and a black woman. Uh, so we were in the same department and we lived together. And I, and I remember, you know, certain things. I, I reflect back now and think, oh, my gosh, actually, was that right? Why were they being perceived as this way? So you have this Irish woman who was fantastic, but she was outspoken. She would, you know, she knew what needed, uh, she wanted and her, what her expectations were from the students. So she had this thing that uh, initially, you know, uh, whenever an, a senior leader or an adult came in the room, she, she laughed, you know, she goes, I was, I was brought up in Ireland. She'd tell the kids to stand up for them. And this white male SLT member took... Um, didn't like this basically it was like oh no why are you telling the kids to do this why are you being so opinionated and you know and bearing in mind we're in QTs at the time so we were trying to gently remind her okay you know calm down but then if you compare that to the white middle leader not white middle leader sorry apologies the Irish middle leader who was actually her mentor and we witnessed him on several occasions, ex, you know, commanding the same expectations from students, like be quiet, stand up, wait to be spoken of, and nobody ever said anything. So it was, a, it was a bit of a okay. You've just said that, you know, she's coming across angry. And the irony for the black, uh, my black colleague, was that she was actually so she was a very quiet person, but whatever for whatever reason, she would say, you know, I feel this perception of that people people aren't coming up to me and saying things to me. And we found that, you know, our head of department and they would kind of come to me or other people and say, could you just pass this to her? Could you just say this to her? So is that like a stereotype that they perceive that because she's black and, you know, the way she'll speak, she might react the way she might react? 
Um, it, I mean, obviously, that is um, perceptions do come into it, and we're gonna we're gonna go through whether race is an issue in terms of perception as well, because obviously it happened to Serena Williams, um, and you know it was a very public incident that happened, um, and there is this uh, angry black woman trope in the media that gets perpetuated all over the place, um, and you know it it makes me think um, how does that affect uh, you know the young women that we're educating because obviously um, they see everything that happens in the media uh, they they see what's happening uh, in their home environments in their school environments and you know eventually when they go into the work environment they'll see similar things happening there as well so when men display anger it kind of reaffirms gender norms which is masculinity so they get rewarded for it and they get power and respect regardless of it being ugly and causing distress like you said that a man said it it wasn't it, you know nobody uh, batted an eyelid so do you feel <clears throat> that your male counterparts get away with saying whatever they want but as a woman you're judged harsher if you were to take the same tone of voice or if you were to do the same kind of thing uh, in an assertive way? Yeah, I do uh, believe there is an element to it. And again, it's the experiences that we have. I mean, I'm uh, in my eighth year of teaching now, but I still feel it's relatively all these things have started to creep in over the last few years. I know I've had discussions with you at times and said, oh, you know, I've seen this. Um, so there's definitely... You know, it's that, that that thing they say to us when you're sending an email, reread it and maybe get somebody else to read it first and see how it's coming across. Am I having to think before I speak how I say things, what I say? So in my previous, in one of my previous roles, I did feel that I, I kind of tried to, in a solution-focused way, go approach SLT and say, look, you know, uh, this is what I witnessed um it's inappropriate behavior it's inappropriate language i don't want to cause a big issue but i am flagging this up to you and you know i've listened to the show when adrian rolands was on as well and very similar is what i feel that the minute that you op kind of like open up and say something it was like oh okay yeah we'll deal with it and i saw a very ch a big change in the way that they treated me afterwards almost and, you know, it's like you're questioning, okay, where's the repercussion? Because in this incident, it was women were actually, uh, men and women were speaking about very, you know, it was a very unprofessional conversation about immigrants and, you know, migrants coming into the country. And this was in front of young people. So I was like, look, you know, I don't think these are appropriate conversations that we should be saying, uh, particularly, you know, they should go back to their own country. Uh, so you know, hang on, hang on a minute. This happened within your organisation at work. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay, that's not. And there were students there present. There were students there present. So I, I was very much because I was the lead teacher at the time in the classroom. I kind of said, listen, you know, I don't want to cause a big issue, but can you just have a chat with them? And what I found was that it more came back onto me than them. It was a case of, oh, you're being too sensitive. 
I've been too sensitive. I don't think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So when we when people do do that, and one of the things that um I've been taught by my leadership coach is when someone does say you're being sensitive, that is kind of a microaggression. Absolutely. It's a kind of deliberate uh, attack to uh, disarm you and question your reality, whether it actually did happen or not. So when things do happen like that um in the classroom where you are undermined or you're made to feel like that, the best thing to do at that point, Rabia, is to actually uh, document and write down uh, exactly what's happened so that you have evidence if you need it in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's like you said, you've been on the um, your mentor and coaching as well. So, I mean, we did the first module for the Academy's uh, Women's Leadership yesterday on womanhood and explored this idea that how much of our identity is forged from, you know, the nurture and also what people say around us. And it's your inner critique, you know, your voice, what's it saying? So I always say to myself, I've become quite confident in being able to say to myself, look, you know, this is right or, you know, this is wrong. And, you know, we are going to have to find ways to overcome this because I don't believe in just sitting and ignoring the situation. You know, as you're saying, like, you know, is it okay for my male counterpart to get, to speak over me and to say things? No. But how do I do it in a way that is not going to come off looking negative? Because we need to be this role model and we need to do it for the future generations. Yeah, I mean, um, what you've said there is 100% spot on. I mean, for let me just go through some uh, information. For women, anger is associated with powerlessness. Um, and that's probably being due to not having the ability to control it. Because for some women, they, they let their emotions supposedly get the best of them, even though men also let emotions get the best of them as well in the heat of the moment. Have you ever, I mean, you've said this earlier, you've had to choose your words more carefully in order to manage people's perceptions. Um, there's this idea that women are supposed to be collaborators, nurturers, good at relationship building, but being angry and opinionated challenges the traditional status quo hierarchies. What are your thoughts on the double standards in the workplace? Is it acceptable for us to be treated differently? Absolutely not. If we're doing the same roles, then, you know, why are we, uh, why should we be treated that way? I mean, I've said to you, you know, I do always find myself rewriting emails before I send them thinking, am I going to be construed as angry, rude or annoyed? Because again, we've witnessed this, that, you know, they'll say, oh, that was, you know, you were quite rude. You said this like this. And I was like, mm, did I raise my voice? Did I shout? You know? Um, and I think, Again, it's coming from my professional identity. I believe regardless of our positions, ethnicity, gender, anything, how we speak to people defines who we are. So it does not really matter if it's a woman or a man, you know, raising your voice. What, what's the reason? I know this whole thing with leadership is, you know, there's a, we attribute with leadership this assertiveness and everything that's coming. We, I know you and I have had similar uh, upbringings in terms of the South Asian culture we were having this conversation where historically you will say the South Asian culture, I mean, I don't know, do you want to take a lead on it first? And then I will kind of like. Bring yeah. Up. Okay. So for example, South Asian culture, 
there is misogyny and sexism in there, just like every other culture. I don't think South Asian culture is any different to any other culture. Um, but we have witnessed it, um, not so much in my own family or your family, because you were you were mentioning this before. We've not seen it within our own families. I mean, my, my father and my brothers have encouraged me to really aim for the top all the time. Um, so I've not witnessed it as much. Like, I, I have the ability to do uh, most things, whatever I want to do. I have a lot of freedom. But I do have friends and colleagues who don't necessarily come from the same sort of backgrounds. Um, and for them, it's much more, um, it seems like they've been uh, nurtured in an environment to be more submissive in that context. And that's what we were discussing yesterday when I went back to the, you know, womanhood thing that, you know, what's our identity for myself as well. We were always raised. And this, this is a very, this, so this concept is so strange to me, you know, when you were also saying that, oh, you know, men speaking to women like this, we were raised, my father, my grandfather, everybody, we always saw, you know, sh showing so much respect towards women. Uh, and they were always respectful. And it was both, you know, I mean, I would some, I'm sometimes laugh that the women, Yes, you would say they were more outspoken perhaps than others, but they were still respected, so this concept. And I mean, I, I laughed that the only time that I've ever seen my grandmother get really annoyed was when my grandfather would raise his voice, which he wouldn't do much at all. And, you know, she'd kind of turn around back and say, what are you raising your voice for? <laughs> you know? So it was a very, very different thing. And this persona of women um so i don't i don't know if you did this sobia as well when you did the course but there was telling us that prior to the 18th century women were in senior roles you know you had your queens you had women who you know were running countries and everything and this whole concept of that men have come in and changed the map of ways and now in the 20th century we're coming back to women being full circle being um in leadership roles again women have notoriously been referred to yes as the mother you know more mothers and soft and that and men are more assertive and boisterous but that I think is definitely something we have created as a culture yeah I mean like you said if we go back into history there's a lot of history um you know like you say you go through different uh, phases Audrey Lord said many years ago that anger is filled with information. So when we shut down somebody's anger, we're literally shutting down the knowledge they have and saying it's not valuable to us as a social resource. Um, and I think that's what that's where it comes down to. It's this social conditioning that if you are a woman and you're opinionated or if you have knowledge, you're still somehow less superior than to a man's knowledge, which we will be discussing later on when we're talking about mansplaining. But it is something that's really important. Rabia would a man on here, Sobia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should have. Um, anyone who's listening who is uh, of uh, the male colleagues, who is a male colleague, please do feel free to come in and um, debate with us and tell us whether we're right or wrong. Um, we do like to have an open platform where everybody can share their ideas and comment in as well. Rabia, would you say that you're agreeable? Do you think it's a quality <laughs> liked by other people in the workplace? And what about SLT? Right. So, I know womenly, women have typically ranked higher than men on agreeableness and they have this reputation for being more nurturing, empathetic, you know, more accommodating. And if you're more likely to be a, 
a female lead who is agreeable, you'll be seen as more likable. But to answer your question, no, I'm not a yes person. <laughs> and I think, you know, my journey in teaching has very much showed that. Um, do I believe that culture impacts our climate? Absolutely. My professional identity is built on values, uh, creating a positive environment in which adults and young people are going to thrive. And it, I, for that, for me to be able to do that, I want to create a culture which is motivated not by political gain. So I am not going to just stand alliances and say, yes, 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 to get myself up to the top. You know, um, I won't align myself with those who we say can be seen as bullying or ignoring the needs of others. And we see this in education. We see this in a lot of sectors. Um, I mean, I had a parent who said to me last year, well, well, the end of this year, so it was the end of this uh, summer in the academic year. Miss Masood, education is becoming a business. It's all about who you know and all the best teachers, you know, who truly have cared have left. And that was really eye-opening for me because as educators, we do try and shield the politics that goes on. You know, we don't want our students to see it. We don't really want it to go back to parents as well because that's not the impression we want to give as well. Um, but the idea is that even when you're agreeable, you're still going to be disliked by another party. You know, so if you take the side of your peers or, you know, your colleagues, then the leadership team might not be very happy with you. If you go the other way, your colleagues might not be happy with you. And I think this is something that women overthink a lot as well. It is a catch-22. If you're, like you said earlier, if you're aggressive, angry, a f you know, direct, a female is less likable by men and other women. However, I think what you need to take into context here is whether you are willing to change your values because obviously, um, as a leader, your values are an important part of you. Um, and number two, as a leader, I question some of these leaders because as a leader, you are there to do a job. Are you there to be popular and to be liked and not hold people accountable? Because I've always had an issue with this. Yeah, well, I definitely have. And I'm, I'm so I'm seeing that a lot more recently. I think I've so I've put myself in positions like um I obviously, you know, I'm trained in mainstream. I moved over to send provisions and alternate provisions a couple of years ago. And what I've noticed is consistent everywhere I've been so far is this very much the inner club. I know we're going to be talking about the bro culture, but there is very much this woman culture or, and all these other things that I'm seeing at the moment. And I look at it and I think, wow, this is particularly bad in education because we surely should be you know, raising our young people to have values, to be, you know, the best versions of themselves that they can be. And yet we see a lot of this alignment and, you know, oh, if you're going to be on my side, I personally tried to stay out of all the politics and do my own thing. And that's what I've always tried to do. Okay, speaking of politics then, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an outspoken woman who has defied the odds to overcome the negative perceptions towards her ambitions of women who seek power and advancement. How did she do it? Well, number one, she worked hard for the job she wanted. Number two, as a woman, you have to understand that there might be a need for different personas. Number three, except it's hard work. And number four, men must be part of the solution. Absolutely. Because 
because uh, Rabia, anger is just an emotion. It's a signal that something is wrong and we need to respect that. Whether um, it's a man or a woman, yeah. we need to respect that something's happened that's gone wrong. And we need, what we need is people to consider what their anger is telling them and then to strategize how to use that anger effectively. So anger is as compassionate, as empathetic, as powerfully sympathetic as love can be. But the difference is that anger costs women financially and it also costs them their competency. Does this seem fair to you? Absolutely not. And I'm sure anybody listening would agree, you know, when you make a statement like that, but then when you're actually in, in the situation. So, um, you know, the quote that we hear that, <clears throat> excuse me, if you... If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a chair. Well, we were talking about this one yesterday and it says bringing a seat to the table is impermanent. And what we need to do is your last point. We Men need to be a part of the solution. We need to all work together to create this new table to say, listen, you know, you can't just sack someone off, especially a female, for making a point that you would have made how, how is you know how can that be justified have you been in the situation Sobia that you feel that that is very much happened to you uh, but there have been situations in my 17 year career where I feel that um I have not been respected uh you know for the role that I've been in so I have been undermined um and I'm sure it's the same not just for women but for men as well that there are people in the work environment that you have to learn how to deal with it's something that obviously as you go up higher higher up the ladder you have to deal with people who do present different challenges to you I think the difference is that women's anger is attributed to internal characteristics but for men it's yeah. called stress yes. so for me this is a double standard and to me it seems a bit unfair because I have worked with female colleagues who have lost their temper yeah. but have been judged more harshly and unfairly in the workplace have you ever been treated unfairly like that yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, it, will, it takes me a lot to get to that point because I do believe, you know, I've always said the shouting and screaming will never achieve anything, particularly in the jobs that we work in and the sector that we work in. I'm sure that when you're with your students as well, you will see this. You know, if you ask them, uh, if you, it's the way you phrase things. It's the way you speak to people. If you show people respect, you will always get that respect back. And I say to the young people when I start, look, I fully respect you. And it's a reason why I feel that I develop the, the relationships very quickly in a positive way with them. When you're saying, you know, if you get angry, have I ever shouted or been like that? I know. However, I have, have I challenged and especially males, have I challenged them? Yes. Has it been not liked by them? So in one situation, when I started as an NQT, there was a scenario where a senior leader was very well respected but he had this um, South Asian, uh, shall we say, temper in him, right? So he was a senior leader. He had this, to put it in context, the head teacher was really scared of him, okay? So uh, he came to speak to me about something. And as I tried to, as I tried to tell him the reason behind why we had done something, he became really irate, really angry. Oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And I felt that I had no other choice but just to be quiet and step back. That, you know, I couldn't say anything. But conversely, at the same time, he was also the biggest advocate for us. 
because we were a huge cohort of NQTs. We were 16. And if anybody was ever unfair to us, he would also stand up. So you have that kind of thing over there. Then come down a couple of years later, and um, where I, I had an exp uh, um, uh, incident with a deputy head, male deputy head two years ago, who, again, I knew had known him because I had sat on others for four years and he knew me from there. So we all started, both started working in this special needs setting. And uh, he said to me, he took offense to the fact that I had raised an awareness of the safeguarding issue that had taken place, which was not saying anything in his leadership or anything. It was just saying, oh, by the way, look, this has happened. How can we move forward? How can we deal with it? And he took it very personally. And he started becoming a bit loud and saying, well, I've never knew this and I didn't knew that. And I did find myself at that point challenging it and turned around and I said to him, listen, you've known me for how many years? Have you ever witnessed this behavior from me? No. So if I've come to you to speak to you about it, you know, why are you getting so defensive? But I did definitely find it had lasting impact, especially when he became head. And <laughs> put it this way, I was my contract was not extended. And though, although it's really... It's not something easy to prove when you come to those situations. He always, I felt, had a chip on his shoulder after that because it was, he felt almost by bringing it to light, I was trying to undermine his authority. I said, no, I'm just bringing it to your attention because first and foremost, we have to put safeguarding of children first. And I think that's a problem, not just in one organization or one one profession. I think that's a, a problem just generally everywhere, yeah. that if you do um, spot something or highlight something, um, it does get taken and misconstrued as, oh, there's a complaint, so therefore it must be against me personally, when really it's a professional issue. Um, I've seen it loads of times when I'm dealing, um, Rabia, I, I used to be a union rep, um, many years ago and I've stopped doing it for the last uh, God knows how many years but <laughs> I've still got that training yeah. and it was the same then that people would take things personally rather than looking at the fact that actually there's a system in the school possibly not working or there's something that's wrong in the workplace that is causing somebody to be um, angry or distressed or something's not working properly or teammates not getting along which is something that needs to be looked into. But the problem is that people take it very personally, uh, like you said. Now, are more, you know, the men are actually being more emotional in that situation. And that's the trait that, you know, women are disliked for. The, the angry, you know, the angry woman that we're coming back to. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, it, there is, um, it, you know, women, men do get emotional as well. Like you said, they do. Um, but if we come back to this idea of women are angry, well, why are women angry? Number one, women are angry with being underpaid. They're angry with being overworked at home and in the workplace. Um, and they're also angry because they're being thwarted from reaching their potential. And sometimes they're diminished in the roles that they're in. Do you feel that women have to work extra hard to make their ideas and opinions heard in meetings? What's your opinion on men taking your ideas? 
is there's this idea um well it's a phenomenon of something called repeated and that's when a male colleague repeats what you've said and it's accepted but conveniently people forget that it was the woman who said the exact same thing either ages ago or moments ago in that meeting has that ever happened to you so you know it's interesting that you mentioned that Sobia. I I I personally feel <laughs> I, I I think you and I would be the same if anyone tried to do that we'd be like hold on that was my idea you know <laughs> very much it's how you again it comes down to your professional identity and the way you do it in the past though I have felt that despite my extra efforts you know I've been the first one in last one out going the extra mile um I feel that I've been doing everything that's been asked of me yet the people still sat on middle leadership, on leadership, you know, in senior leadership, don't do any of that. And and they are being praised and listened to more. Um, and I think it's that thing that we talk about, you know, how confidence is a stance that if I come prepared, if I do the research, then I feel confident enough to stand in front of them and say, actually say, excuse me, wait a second, you're saying that, but... That's something I, I have bought. I, it's you, I think we need to look at, you know, are we always trying to take, are we always trying to gain, um, you know, acknowledgement for every little thing we do? No, you know, it's not about always praise me, praise me. But most definitely I have found that, I mean, my role last year, you know, I was working as, on supply. We had the, the, you know, we talked about supply and agency work and everything. And I was work, had a one-year contract working as a supply teacher. And yet I was the one who never took lunch breaks. I was the one who was last out of the building to the, you know, the, the head teacher, the deputy head, they used to come and find, come on, let's go out there. Because I wanted to make a difference during a pandemic we knew how difficult things were and we wanted to support these young people i um i would say these young people who had special needs were the, the most affected that I had seen you know they really had been impacted there was a lot of work to do there and it was never it it was almost a case of you weren't said oh there was never any acknowledgement of it and you're having all these, um, you know, the meetings, the weekly meetings, you have staff debriefings. Yes. Like, oh, you know what? Great. Well done to the Senko. Great. Well done to, well, not even the Senko, actually, in this scenario. It was all the leadership team just congratulating each other. And you'd kind of sit there thinking, I don't really need a lot of praise, but can you acknowledge that this has actually happened because of the way we've been supporting the team and the way we're doing things? Well, and yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. A lot of this um, is the same in any other profession. It's not just isolated to the education profession. But I agree with what you're saying. There are some leaders within our profession who take credit for other people's uh, hard work and effort. And it's something that's always bugged me, not because, not just because it's happened to me in the past, but it's also I've seen good outstanding leaders and when I've seen good outstanding leaders and the best leadership is I think in Nelson Mandela's words where you're standing from the back leadership is when you're standing from the back and you're encouraging everybody else and you're promoting everybody else that's what leadership is and so some sometimes for me I think um it is an issue that uh leaders do need to be aware of uh it's something that you don't even realize it's unconscious um I need to mention the queen bee Sobia because I know we're talking about you know how men trying to take uh so in my situation I personally haven't 
I don't think I'd ever let a man take it, if I'm honest, credit for something if I had been putting effort to it. I wouldn't, my, my way of handling it wouldn't be to, you know, start lashing out how they would expect a woman to be. I would do it in a proactive way where I'd say, can I just ask where you've got that idea from? Well, you know, I almost feel it's like you tease it out of them. But this idea of these queen bees that, you know, women themselves, unfortunately, we like to denigrate a successful female leader. You know, it makes them feel better about themselves. And I think we talk about men not, you know, supporting us and raising us and being our champions. But there is definitely an issue. I, I, I personally feel I've experienced that more of women not, um, championing each other championing each other yeah I mean I've experienced it from women as well and it all comes back down from both male and women leaders it all comes back down to insecurity really um I just feel that um if you are in leadership position you're in that position for a reason and so if you're in that position for a reason your responsibility is to influence and bring up the next generation of leaders because that's what your responsibility is but if you're too busy sitting there um and self-promoting self-congratulating and thinking about your own career development people can see through that straight away Absolutely. they're not stupid they're not stupid they can see that straight away and therefore you don't get buy-in and what whilst you get results because those people are hard workers and they're constantly doing their roles but there's also the fact that you have a title and just because you have a title it doesn't mean that you are a brilliant leader it means that they know that they're going to be held accountable you know for something they've not done that's not leadership that's management that's something that's something completely different that's being a boss that's not being a leader and you know? we also talk about we mentioned this yesterday that men are known as the boss but women are known as bossy yeah um i'm glad you said that because i was just <laughs> going to mention that when you do call them out on it they do say that you get risk as a woman of being called a B-I-T-C-H, <laughs> or bossy, yeah, or bossy and angry. And it happened to Sheryl Sandberg, actually, because yeah. Sheryl Sandberg, um, a, a tech leader, a titan in the tech industry, Facebook leader, um, she launched a campaign. And that campaign I really liked. It was Ban Bossy. Um, and I remember it clearly because I remember when I was at university and I was studying computer science, so I was in a proper male-dominated testosterone-filled environment all the time. And I remember one of my friends, actually, him saying to me, oh, you're quite bossy, aren't you? And I was... I was about 17, 18, 19. That's the time of, that's around the time you go to university. Yeah. And obviously I didn't know about stuff like this because I'd never been brought up in an environment where I was taught about leadership or careers or anything like that. And I didn't understand it. And it wasn't until years later, possibly two decades later, that I realized that that comment had negatively impacted the way that I felt other people perceived me. And it held me back. Yeah, it held me back. Because, yeah, well, exactly, I had to reframe it. But the funny thing is that the reason why I felt that afterwards is because I never received that from my dad and I never received that from my brothers and I never received it from my four uncles that I have as well. 
So I came from a boy's family. You know, there's a lot of us. I, you know, I come from a huge boy's family. So I, if I've never received it, within my own family, I kind of, it kind of impacted me that I was receiving this from outside. Um, anyway, this campaign from Sheryl Sandberg, it allows young women to feel more confident, more assertive, and to pursue leadership roles. And because I was in a male-dominated environment, it's really important for me, and I go out of my way to make sure that women and young girls are treated fairly, so how can women stand up for themselves professionally? And, and, and uh, to add to that, Sobia, it's that thing, why can't women have it all? Would we say to a man that they can't have it all? Yeah, I, exactly. Um, it is that idea of why can't women have it all. But there is, you know, obviously it's not every woman's the same, just like not every man's the same. And I think it, it all needs to be put into context and whatever suits you as a person is the best way to go with this. But as a woman, when you're in that situation and you're perceived in that way, these are the ways that you can stand up for yourself professionally. So number one, develop self-awareness. If you are angry for some reason or if there has been an incident and you have to be assertive, look at what it's telling you. And if it's something that you've either misinterpreted or it's something that's been caused by you, then be, be an adult and own it. And I think that's one of the problems that I have within the profession, that we don't own our own inadequacies or our own incompetence sometimes. And I call myself incompetent, not as a, as a leader or a teacher, but sometimes I make mistakes. That's probably the right way to say it. I'm not incompetent, I make mistakes. We should be able to be free to make those mistakes. That's what risk-taking is. And the education system has changed. It never used to be as, as cutthroat that it is now. Um, knowing the difference between anger, aggression, and assertiveness, I think as yourself, as a person, you need to decide um, whether the way that you've reacted is anger, aggression, or, you know, is it assertive or not? And if you have made a mistake and you have been angry in the workplace, then be brave enough to move forward and take deliberate care for yourself. Be strategic if you have to in the way that you channeled that anger. And yes, like you were saying before, challenge binaries. Men can be just as emotional as women. Um, and, you know, it's something that our young women need to be taught about. Um, be productive and not explosive because otherwise it means that you've lost it. Um, and I like the idea of what you said before, be solution focused. And the way that you could do that is say to somebody that you really, really don't, dis don't like or disagree with, that's interesting but I see it differently. What makes you think this way? And you might learn something and finish strong. So you can go away saying, well, what did we agree on? This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. And you can move forward. Um, the, the queen bee thing that you just mentioned, I agree that happens in the, in the workplace environment, but you need to be able to trust other women. Um, and you need to, as a female, um, accept your desire for power because that's what it comes down to. Because essentially, if you are in a leadership role and you are wanting to make headship, for example, that is a desire for power. 
you're not going to be nice nice to get there you have to be direct you have to be authoritative you are going to be undermined you are going to face difficulties you need to be able to stand up for yourself in that environment I think it's the way we do it though Sobia that's the conversations here so I was so we've recently had a big shift in the way things are happening um, where I started to work I, I literally walked in and <laughs> we've been told like pretty much oh Ofsted's coming in now so I was like oh great you know <laughs> of all the places that I could have worked but one thing I have found people saying a lot men and women so this is coming from both my male and female counterparts they're saying you know it's that empathetic anger that we're going back to. We all feel share the same frustrations about where we are and we all share the same goals and aspirations to where we would like the school to be, for example. And if we are going to be in that, in that way, if we work together and we create a positive working, you know, culture and climate, we will actually excel much better. Where you have leaders speaking down to you, completely being negative all the time that is that that doesn't create good morale that then creates this high turnover that we have and the instability that we have in education and quite frankly you know i know you're going to be discussing all these things later on about stem and all these and why we don't have women in this it's because we are not creating the right culture and climate because of our egos and there is no place for egos there, there isn't in truly i believe in if you're going to have truly positive leadership and effective leadership, you can do it without having egos. Yeah, um, I agree. I think a lot of it does come down to personalities uh, and it's something um, that as a leader, you have to think about coaching for those people who are struggling to uh, either get along with other members of staff or there are issues there. I'm going to finish off with a quote by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and I hope I've said that, pronounced that right. She says, we spend too much time teaching girls to worry about what boys think of them, but the reverse is not the case. We don't teach boys to care about being likable. We spend too much time telling girls that they cannot be angry or aggressive or tough, which is bad enough. But then when we turn around and either praise or excuse men for the same reasons, all over the world, there are so many magazine articles and books telling women what to do, how to be and not to be in order to attract or please men. There are fewer, far fewer guides for men about pleasing women. And I think that can be extended to the workplace because it's the same principle in leadership. We're told how to act in a certain way. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's part of the reason why I like the leadership coaching that I'm having is specifically focused on women and women issues and how women deal with leadership in the organisations they're in. Absolutely. And it's this thing, you know, if we come together and support each other, regardless actually it should be of you know our gender in this we can we can excel we can create this change that we are talking about that needs to happen yep agreed um rabia i'm just going to take a quick news break a news and ad break and then we're going to come back so uh is that okay with you yeah absolutely brilliant okay uh let's go to the news need support with your phonics teaching did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. 
Essential letters and sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. In a Unison press release issued on their website, union leaders celebrate the inclusion of all education staff in the new Department for Education Wellbeing Charter. The relaunch charter issued this week now includes support staff, following union pressure for it to be more inclusive. Previous incarnations of the Charter focused entirely on teachers and school leaders, but left out almost 50% of school staff, including teaching assistants, caretakers and catering staff. Unison recognised the move to include all union staff as a positive one, and Lee Powell, Unison's National Officer for Schools, said we look forward to working with schools and colleges to promote the mental well-being of all staff. In Scotland, plans to help reduce teacher workload by reducing teachers' weekly class contact time by 90 minutes have been described as challenging by Scottish Education Secretary Shirley-Anne Somerville. Ms Somerville said in a report on the TES website that she can't give a definite timescale, although she promised that it would still happen. The plan to reduce contact time by an hour and a half a week was one of the most eye-catching promises made in the SNP manifesto for parliamentary elections in May. According to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, contact time is disproportionately high in Scotland and is a major cause for concern for teachers and school leaders. Workload increases caused by a range of factors associated with the pandemic are also featured in a piece on the TES website. An article by James O'Malley highlights the issues schools face in recruiting supply teachers to cover for absent staff. The article cites Department for Education data for early November, which showed that 2.1% of teachers and school leaders were absent for COVID-related reasons. The article also highlights that with winter approaching, other seasonal illnesses are also causing absence. Schools are increasingly finding the usual pool of supply teachers is not as deep as it once was, and that the cost of supply is not something schools can now easily afford. Solutions which many schools are having to put in place to manage staffing shortages include combining classes, having senior leaders take lessons and drawing up plans that could see entire year groups being sent home in an emergency situation. Undoubtedly the situation is challenging and is yet another contributing factor in the increasing stresses and pressures faced by school leaders and those working in schools. Finally, Lincolnshire Live reports that, in a bid to promote well-being, the University of Lincoln held a dog de-stress event on Wednesday. The event was organised by Lucy Robertson, a third-year medical student, for the Medical Society. And the feedback included comments that the therapy of petting dogs seems to have worked. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. 
Right, welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're listening to um, Rabia Masood talking to us about uh, work workplace sexism. Um, we've been discussing uh, whether it's appropriate for women to be angry, how women should deal with anger, and why there are double standards in the workplace with regards to anger as well. I'm going to move on now to something called bro culture. Now, bro culture isn't new. It's been in existence in organizations from the very beginning as these organizations were set up by men. And it happens a lot in the tech industry. Um, and I've started to see elements of it happening in education as well. It's a culture dominated by overconfident, arrogant, obnoxious men. And the gender pay gap and sexual harassment at work are proof that it still exists. Um, with the lack of women getting into senior leadership roles, despite having better qualifications, work ethic and performance, Rabia, have you ever faced this bro culture at work? Um, if so, how did you deal with it? And what are your thoughts on it? So, Sobia, this culture definitely We can see that. It's this toxic uh, it's toxic and it's insidious in startups, like you're saying, especially it's more in the tech uh, industry. But I have started to see, yes, in education. So you'll find, you know, if you have your leadership team, uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to know who your listeners are right now. I'll see the numbers go down. But if you have male PE teachers, you know, when we talk about this male PE syndrome, that they are uh, PE teachers who've ended up in senior leadership and in headship, and you watch them sometimes and you observe them from afar and think, gosh you are so immature this is like when you're back at university how you might be hanging out how you might be acting what you say and I have seen this in uh, I've seen this in support staff as well the way they are messing about and how they speak to kids as well and I think this is this isn't the example that we need and as women if you try and correct it or point it out you very much are isolated um, yeah, I think um, I think it's difficult for anyone to kind of challenge that kind of culture unless you're the head teacher or the senior leadership team. And if it is in the senior leadership team, it becomes even more. However, I did have a friend contact me just this week, actually, and he was saying how in his school there was a leadership which was entirely made up of men. And that was up until two years ago. And then two years ago, um, they actually asked the staff body, what can we do to change things around in the school? They were looking for feedback. And in their discussions, one of the feedback was there's no women on the leadership team. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with yeah. that? And so they took that feedback on board. And I'm I'm pleased to say that um, I've actually been to that school now and there are two women on that leadership team, which is brilliant. Um, and I think I think it takes a very brave person or staff body to challenge that kind of culture in a school, because essentially you're putting your head, uh, you know, above the parapet. And when you are putting your head above the parapet, you do become um, targeted as well. So you have to be very careful in the way that you do it. Now, bro culture isn't as excessive in the education sector because clearly you know we, we're in a different profession but in the tech sector it is very very huge and it, it encourages excessive partying and bullying and I remember 
before when I took some time out from the profession I did do an IT it was a tech course that I was you know learning to do um UX designing and I felt that that I felt exactly the same way. We would go to events, we would go to meetups and, and things like that that we were encouraged to go to. But it was very much like the whole university campus feeling where it was just a bunch of men, you know, drinking beer, you know, taking shots, yeah. uh, music, dancing, you know, and the females were having a great time as well. And, you know, obviously I attended those events as well, but it just felt like it was very much um, not the kind of culture that I, you know, I enjoyed being around or being in uh, 24-7. So especially because my background was education and this was just a course that I was doing. So this, um, this bro culture it happens in a lot of organizations um and i'm going to come on to why it's important it's costing the uk economy 23.6 billion pounds per year mm. and a third of british workers quit due to work bad workplace culture mm. and diversity doesn't exist and in my original industry which is the tech sector, because that's where I, you know, started off from, you know, I was deeply affected by it. And I'm, and you know, I'm a South Asian female, and I'm pretty sure other people have been as well. So I've got a male colleague who's actually a, a black male colleague, and he says the same thing that in, especially in tech for, you know, the last 10 years, it's improved now over the last few years, you know, ever since um, all these campaigns have been going on. But there was a real issue, especially in Silicon Valley, to yeah. get you know, minorities into uh, the industry and to be taken seriously as well. So in 2018, there were only 17% of females in the UK tech sector and figures have increased now because of the hybrid working patterns that have obviously contributed to growth, uh, especially during the pandemic and more women wanting to work flexibly. So out of 58,000 new tech jobs created in the UK recently, most of them have been filled by females, which is a phenomenal figure and really well done to the people who are working in the tech sector who are getting women into tech and coding and also sorts. Rabia, one of the things that I've had a problem with, when I was in secondary school, and everybody knows that I went to an all-girls school, uh, this was over two decades, possibly two decades ago now. Um, after, I remember in that secondary school, I was encouraged into STEM. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing up in assembly, encouraging other girls into STEM as well. And it, I'm probably... I know for a fact that I've got that speech somewhere that I wrote to encourage those girls into STEM. Why after two decades of investment and possibly longer, because, you know, the 80s were a hotbed of women, you know, going into tech and that was the most, you know, uh, most, um, you know, uh, it was the it was the best era for women going into computing, for example, because that that was the era that every woman went into uh, computing because it was a big thing. Why, after all this time, are we still having to push women into STEM? So, Sophia, this is interesting because I also have the same recollections as you do. Um, I went to an all girls school as well, and you know, I so as uh, when I a few years ago when I started working in science leading and AP. 
um, I came across the, the gentleman at the time who was running STEM and really he opened up my eyes to, wow, we can actually incorporate this. You know, we can go cross curriculum and really work together to be these role models for young people both men you know for girls and boys to say hey look you know this is what we're doing so we started having uh doing classes and things together to show the overlap and to show boys and girls you know you can really enjoy and do it but i think one of the biggest issues that has come from it you, you mentioned investment but i don't think i think there is a huge culture and education shortfalls in terms of lack of funding in schools the staff were available to run these clubs and be the role models. The pandemic hasn't helped. Everything has been put on hold. We understand this. So I have, where I have started working recently, I have tried to really push. I'm doing a maternity, I'm supporting a, a science teacher who's coming back off maternity. So, you know, I'm only doing that part time. And I've said, look, if that's their ball game, what I really want to do is get young people really passionate and, you know, that the uh, engaged in the sciences and all these things again. And the way I've come in is I've started doing simple things like, hey, here's a 3D pen, what can you do with it? And I've had some people go, what's a 3D pen? What does it do? What can you do with it? And I've requested funding for these things. And I've requested that we work together with, um, we're trying to do a lot of enrichments uh, in terms of uh, mechanics and things like that and really show how these things come together. Because when you expose people to something and you give them a taster and a sample, you encourage them to take part in these, um, you know, in these activities. So we need to definitely, definitely have, um, we need more mentors, role models to come forward. We need to, you know, take charge and educate adults and young people. So something I've have done in the past and hoping to do again we had as a south asian culture you know in terms of the south asian culture that we had here they put on this event uh, through the creative mind society and they were asking pe people to come in and they asked youngsters anybody you know come and show a talent or take part in something so i had a stem pop-up this is what i did and you know uh, i found that young people adults were you know and parents they were coming up oh okay what's this how can you do this a lot of kitchen sink stuff. And again, we uh, use this a lot in the lockdown to say to parents, you know, the government's saying, oh, we want children to engage in five, six hours of learning a day. And I was saying to parents, have you got some salt? Have you got some ice? Do this experiment, do these things, get your children thinking, you know, get them really thinking and engaged and asking questions. And it became very, you know, apparent to parents that they could do these things without having to spend a lot of money as well. Oh, actually, it won't make that much of a mess. It is something that we can sit down and do. Um, encouraging participation in this program. So we have uh, the Nottingham, uh, the Not it's called the Nottingham Festival, let me get it right, Notts Festival of Science and Curiosity, where they have started in, uh, again, this is pre-pandemic, so it's kind of created a bit of an issue in between going into the community half term into libraries into places and putting on an array of things and just saying to young people and adults come just have a look at this you know have a go at basically uh creating i don't know lava lamps doing whatever you know the most small tiny things engages people gets them thinking again and that's something that i've been putting a big big push on as well but i think it does stem back to what i've mentioned to you before 
about these ex lower expectation for women and they can't have it all and you know having to put the home lives and everything before uh, first which it doesn't need to be um and but again there i do think in, as as educators and in schools we need to be putting more funding more time i don't feel we are putting it it's becoming more onto the very much you know core subjects and that's it yeah i mean obviously that was something i was i was going to mention that english and maths obviously take priority uh, for a lot of schools because obviously that's how progress eight is measured now um one of the things that um i'm thinking about is the fact that Obviously, when I'm teaching girls, um, and I don't teach computer science as much anymore, I only teach a few subjects, uh, a few uh, lessons a week. But when I'm sitting there thinking, I'm looking at my girls, a lot of them get put off um, for several reasons. One of the reasons they get put off is sometimes the way that the subject is taught. Um, and I think that's something that we need to be thinking of about as educators, that are we, if we're teaching them um, STEM subjects, are we teaching them in a way that uses research and also uh, focuses on the way that, uh, you know, the woman uh, understands it. Um, because I know I struggled with um, some subjects when I was younger. For example, I got double A star in double science. But when it came to maths, um, I got a grade B, which was, you know, different. You and so me, so we <laughs> but but no but the thing is this is what I'm saying and teaching did make a difference yeah. uh, and that's what I'm trying to say that teachers do make a difference uh, in the way that uh, subjects uh, and their specialism is taught um one of the things that I've been thinking about um and it has been mentioned elsewhere as well that because there are so many problems within our schools um a lot of people in industry are blaming it on the fact that you know all of these problems do start in school which i tend to agree with to a certain extent but then at the same time should we not be not encouraging our women into stem but we should be encouraging our boys into other professions such as nursing shouldn't we be balanced in the way that we're doing this absolutely um, because there is no gender-specific um, course, in my opinion. Uh, I do think that women, uh, especially when they're um, in secondary school and college and university, they do get higher attainment uh, in STEM subjects. But when we go into the workplace, it's clearly highlighted the problem starts in the workplace rather than schools. So I'm actually debating that. There was this article that said that the problems start in schools, but I'm actually debating that and saying that actually it starts in the workplace because most of our girls do get high attainment in STEM subjects, but it's not the it, it, they're just not getting promoted into senior roles when they go into the workplace. Um, and part of it's also due to women's confidence because I remember... When I went into uh, university, you've got to remember, I came from a, a, a working class background. Um, I, um, I was the first person to graduate and go to university from my family. Um, and I was a, a free school meal child as well. And when I'm thinking back to, you know, my, my history, uh, I remember I was doing this big computer science degree and I had no idea that grammar schools and private schools existed. <laughs> and that's probably and that's probably because I went to an outstanding girls school which rivaled, 
you know, private schools and grammar schools. Um, but the thing is, it kind of like, um, I felt that I didn't have the same confidence that some people that I was studying with had, because they were overconfident. I mean, they kind of like, they could talk their way through anything. And I guess that happens in the workplace as well, that there are some people who are overconfident and find it easier to move upwards. And that's, and that's necessarily men. men. Men feel that they could, you know, do that job really easily because I've trained a lot of men in, in education and it always amazes me when they come in as a, an ECT or an NQT, whatever you want to call it now, um, and how they want to progress like straight away and you're sitting there thinking you can't even teach the class yet and you want to progress into a leadership role this is experiences isn't it it's interesting you say that because i've uh, mentored three uh, three teachers male nqts uh, sorry bgc teachers student teachers and one of them was an ex-police commissioner so you can imagine you know the way they would have been and the reluctance but actually i had the opposite experience of that because they could see that I would wanted to get them to where they needed to be. They were more agreeable. And this confidence that you're saying, yes, it, yes, we see that, but it, is it a true confidence because, or a false confidence? Because I come from private school, you see, so I've had the opposite to you, but I would say to you that I didn't feel I was confident enough at all. I felt everybody else had this amazing confidence that they were bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think they, it does surprise me that um, it does surprise me that people do come in and think that it's easy to get promoted. And in some in some instances, I'm going to agree, it is easy to get promoted. It, it depends on time, place, circumstances. And there are some organisations that do want to progress people very quickly. And I can see that. But then at the same time, um, it, it does astound me when I see some people you know being overly confident uh, and you're sitting there and you're thinking am I the only person that can see that this person's not ready <laughs> um so yeah um I do think that uh, women do move more horizontally whether rather than upwards and I do think that work-life balance and culture play a huge part um as to what women uh, are able to do and how much they're able to participate in activities as well so a report by women who tech showed 48% of 1,000 females have been harassed, 63% have been subjected to sexism, and 43% have been um, subjected to sexual harassment. Now, um, it's not it's not a, we don't see it a lot in education on the surface, but behind the scenes, I have spoken to a few recruitment uh, consultants, um, and a few of them shocked me with their stories. Uh, I'm not going to name names on the radio, but they said that there were some head teachers who contacted them um, and they were only looking for a certain type of female who would look good on their uh, literature, so to speak. Um, and, it, you know, it did make me think that as women, we're always sitting here thinking, well, are we just the, the token SLT member that's been placed here or are we actually there because of our own of our own competence and our hard work and our own merit and I think um 
I think one of the complaints about these kind of cultures are, and I'm talking about hierarchical companies, um, which exclude women from this all boys club that uh, some organisations still uh, have. We need to tackle our biases around how we educate women, uh, not only for the next generation, but also in the sciences. Um, I don't, as somebody who is a female tech leader, I don't think it's appropriate for me to not challenge an environment like that, because what message are we signaling to our young women and our young men? We're supposed to be modelling, yeah. you know, um, a fair a fair and just world, and we don't see that in our organisations sometimes. And, and this is actually, this is a big conversation for our teaching programmes as well because um, I have experienced and witnessed it, actually, uh, interestingly what you've mentioned about the way women are treated uh, and the sexism and all of this. And uh, I actually had an experience as well where I was assaulted by a member of staff and the boys club that sat at the top, they were quite scared initially. There was very much, the, there was an open admission straight away. This was wrong, this shouldn't have happened. There was an apology, everything. But that's it. We're going to move forward now. And at the time, I was obviously newly qualified. You know, I didn't want to. I felt very, that I couldn't say anything because it could impact my career. I could have been seen as a weak woman, creating issues and problems. And part of that has led to my, you know, my identity. That you know, when I've said to you that I started wearing a hijab last year, and uh, no, we've had this conversation before, and I said, you know, Sobi, I really want to be respected for me. Um, just to interrupt you there, for our listeners who don't know, the hijab is a, a, the veil that the woman wears, a, a Muslim woman wears. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and I've taken, and I have to say it has not made, it's not made a difference to the way my pupils or, you know, young people react towards how I am as a teacher. Uh, if anything, I've they are just so much more inquisitive and so much more, much more curious I do feel in the last two years that I have been respected a lot more for me as, you know, um, by my male counterparts. I can't say whether that's true as for my female counterparts, but it's this this thing that you're saying that there is, I think there, I remember being taught, told by not only myself, others on our PGC course, we were discussing a few scenarios and situations like this, and um, saying that, you know, we were told basically by the university mentors to keep our mouths closed and just to move on because, and the, there was this notion of it's so hard to get placements at the moment in schools because of, you know, the situations we are. And the university was, they didn't want to lose these partnerships. And I remember many of us, I had a friend who basically, one of my very good friends was gay and they had openly kind of gone in and said, you know, this is my persona and stuff. And they mentioned that how they struggled very much to get a role because of this. Uh, they felt that they were just being turned down for no reason. And when they were being spoken, when they spoken to, they, they, you know, when they spoken to certain people who'd stayed in that school and they ended up speaking to the leaders or whatever, that they, they'd come out very much, yeah, we didn't want that. So there's this whole conversation where I know this is going the other way that we can have. So there are many, many things that we need to look into. But I think our teaching courses as well, especially the support that we're giving to women and men coming in, we need to acknowledge that, you know. That, 
Rabia. Um, yeah, I, I agree to a certain extent. We do need to think about um, not just uh, who we're recruiting, but we also need to think about uh, retention as well. So this means making it clear that you know, for one of the things that I think is really important, making it clear that men are not better than women. Um, we're not giving boys more attention in our classes because they're louder and highlighting strong females in the roles for the careers that they want to pursue in the future is really important. I do feel that women have been let down slightly um, because we've been uh, conditioned to go into STEM um, and then we do work in unwelcoming cultures where there's a lack of flexible working and in some industries that's a huge strain, especially within education. So just because an organisation says that they believe in diversity it doesn't always in equal to inclusion and people are more focused on um, filling diversity quotas rather than focusing on achieving gender equality. Now, figures revealed that there are over 50,000 uh, women in STEM roles in comparison to 10 years ago, which is fantastic. However, there has been a recent drop caused by the pandemic. And bro culture is basically the modern manifestation of the patriarchy. When you look back in history, these organisations were created by men for men on the assumption that women would stay at home with the children and women now have to conform to that but this myth that there isn't a talent pipeline is just that there is a myth there are plenty of highly qualified women uh, out there who can do roles um, that um, are suitable especially diverse women now Finally, just to uh, finish off, it's the things that uh, some people have been waiting for. It's a bit cringeworthy, but, you know, it happens on Twitter, it happens at work, it happens in the classroom and it happens at home. Famous men, politicians, colleagues, dates, neighbours, brothers, fathers and so on. Every woman has experienced it. And we're talking about mansplaining. <laughs> so mansplaining um it's the portmanteau describes the act of unsolicited explaining condescending to a woman something he thinks he knows about more than she does whether he actually does or does not is another matter he has his eyes fixed on the fuzzy far horizon of his own authority um, it's an act of modern patriarchy, a sense of entitlement claimed by men to have more prestigious, superior knowledge than a woman. It smacks of having biases where women are somehow less comp competent than men. And it crushes young women into silence by telling them it's not their world. It trains women to self-doubt and self-limitate just as much as it exercises men's unsupported overconfidence. Mansplaining also known as men who don't value your opinion. Uh, very briefly, Rabia, does it happen to you and how did you deal with it? <laughs> I think, it, yes, I've definitely experienced it. And I think that is the one, you know, coming back full circle about being angry. That definitely gets me angry. <laughs> it, 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 I feel very much like, well, I did go to university. You know, I do have an education. I do work as hard as you. You do not need to mansplain things to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think, um, especially in STEM subjects, it happens a lot um, because, you know, uh, there's a lot of technical information uh, required. Um, and I think um, there's this idea perpetuated in society that boys will be boys. And to be honest, I'm at the stage where I want to see men being men in the workplace. So culturally, we've kind of raised men to stay as boys. But for me, when I'm working in an environment, I'm not looking to work with a boy. I think women are adult enough and expect the same treatment as men. So are 
work is just as important as men's. But the problem with the mansplainer is that he's an educated, hyper-confident male with a condescending tone, and he comes from privilege and feels entitled to explain things as though it's his moral or ethical responsibility. He's the kind of person that loves to hear himself, even more so on social media platforms. And when he tries to correct you, he begins with, actually... So he goes out of his way to silence you or correct or explain to you, mainly because as a woman, you don't know anything about boy topics. Now, let me give you a quick example. I received an email telling me that I would be helped with something, um, even though technically I was very good at using ICT. And when I read that email, my first instinct was, I beg your pardon, I have a computer science degree. I'm not just good at ICT, I'm specialised in it as well. And that doesn't make me arrogant or egotistical. It means that, you know, I don't claim to know everything. In fact, normal people don't know everything. And we have the confidence to say that we don't know everything as well. However, the way you speak to women is important. Women want to be spoken with, not spoken at. And when I was younger, Rabia, um, when I was younger, I used to be okay with it. I used to say, yeah, I know, or okay. (laughs) But I'm now an adult woman and I'm coming into my 40s and I think I've got every right to think for myself, as do all my female friends who complain about the same thing. Um, Women much older than me are also going through the same phenomenon where male colleagues with with some experience or even no experience are telling women with PhDs how to run the show. So mansplainers hate being put in their place. It can make some of them very angry and that can affect your career. But it is important to let them know if they are or aren't helping. So how can men tell if they're mansplaining? Well, Kim Goodwin created a chart which went viral and a BBC article explained it. It is easy to tell the difference between condescending or explaining something while male. So how do you know? Number one, ask them, the female, do they want an explanation? If so, go for it, men. Unsolicited explanations within reason are okay if you're someone's teacher or manager, but explaining after declining your help is disrespectful. Number two, are you making bad assumptions about competence? Regardless of intent, you may be undermining a colleague by implying you don't trust their competence or intelligence. You also risk looking like you have an inflated opinion of your own knowledge. And number three, how does bias affect your interpretation of the above. Now, sexism and bias, we're all taught this from a young age, but men often assume women are less competent and white people are likely to assume darker skin equals lower intelligence. So men, please look for signs. Is she interested? Did she express a desire to have information knowledge imparted to her? Is she more expert than you? If she is, forget it. Don't even try to explain to her. (laughs) But men, these men do it to other men too. So maybe we should just ignore it. However, somebody said, is it sexist to use the word mansplaining? No, because it doesn't invalidate the message of systemic sexism, which targets women. If women interrupt in the same way, and this is true because I've had this happen to me, they're considered rude and less intelligent and described as abrasive. Even though it seems... Yeah, it's true. It happens. And even though it seems trivial for some people, it does matter to them to know that they're valued. So what tips would you give? Well, Rabia, this is what I would do first. I would call it out 
and say no. And the way you could do that is by saying, excuse me, thank you for explaining that to me, but I want to find out for myself or I already know that. Make sure you use other women in the workplace to support or credit your work and opinions so that um, he knows you're more than capable and competent. Say no to doing things which don't contribute to your appraisal. And that's really hard for women to do because they want to do everything. But say no. Say no to doing any admin. I refuse to do admin. If it's an admin task, I get admin to do it. And also do a check. So make sure you say comments like, I appreciate the comment, but I've got this. Or let me continue. And if there's still a question, we can address it then. Or that comment makes me wonder if it might be helpful to let you know my background. Use humor if you have to. So for example, so you turn around and say, John, I'm not going to give you the floor until I'm ready. So you might as well wait. Your delivery when you're talking to men in this concept, in this context, is to smile so that your intent is clear. And if you're in a meeting where there are very loud voices, then you have to make sure yours is louder to be heard. And I think for leaders, it's really important to create a zero tolerance of workplace sexism. What message are we sending to our young generation who we are training to be able to go and work in the workplace. And that's not the only um, reason for education, but it is one of the reasons. Yeah, I um, the tools to survive in the future, mm, and, you know, when they're in the real world. But I will just add, Sylvia, quite frankly, if, if somebody tries to mansplain to me, I just bring women explain back to them. I laugh it off and <laughs> right, you can sit here whilst I tell you, I have no issue in doing that. Okay. Um, for leaders, please make sure you're offering some sort of path, clear path for advancement and work-life balance. Um, and also listen and amplify female voices if you can see it happening within your organisations and address it with the men and people who are doing it as well. Uh, I think it's really important that we model the behaviour uh, that we expect. Um, and I think for... Um, you know, when women do go into the workplace, it, you know, they need to be prepared because uh, it's not so easy uh, as a female, uh, especially when you go into leadership or you're in STEM subjects. Any final thoughts, Rabia? You've done well, Sylvia. You've managed to get all the topics in your allotted time with two minutes to spare. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Rabia, for coming onto the show. Uh, it's been interesting to get uh, an insight. Um, uh, and I know that uh, one of my colleagues, Freya, has been tweeting out about uh, some of the things that you've been saying, which is fantastic about anger and women and anger in the workplace. Um, right. Thanks for listening. Graham is up next. Um, Khalil is going to be after then. And we've also got Harim coming on today. I'm not here next week. I'm going to come back in two weeks time. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to uh, go through Helen's section, which is the third part interview that we had uh, on that show. So thank you very much for joining me today. And I'll see you all in two weeks time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.